So uh, if you are physically able out of reverence for God's word, I'd ask that you stand as we read what he has revealed of himself in Habakkuk 2, verses 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, prophets, uh, especially here in the, in the Old Testament, uh, prophets sometimes get a, a uh, I don't know, just slightly off view and understanding of what they are. Sometimes we read the prophets and because they speak of future things, we think prophets are fortune tellers or prophets are future tellers or prophets are telling us what's about to happen. Yet there is some of that. Uh, in, in prophecy, but, but if we want to give a better general definition of what a prophet is doing, is that they're not always saying, hey, I'm going to call the shots for God. They are actually messengers of God. God speaks to them, and a prophet carries that message to the people. Now, a lot of times that, that the, the prophets are called about when, um, especially, you know, what we're reading here in Habakkuk, uh, prophets are called when God's got something to tell people that's not so great. Um, and it's saying, hey, you messed up, and here's what's going to happen. So there's part of that future, you know, kind of a thing. But what prophets do is they convey the message of God. They are speakers. They are messengers of God. And that's what they're doing. That is a very general term, but we need to remember that God is speaking through the prophets, not just predicting things of the future. Why do we need to know that? Because if we read Habakkuk, we may say, oh, well, Babylon, woes upon Babylon, and Babylon was defeated, and we're done. Uh, But there's something true here. We need to slow down and see what's happening in the moment. Why are these people being called out? Why are these people being punished? When we read other parts of scripture, other prophets, they're not going to speak maybe against Babylon. They're going to speak against God's people. We're going to get this in a couple weeks. We're going to turn over towards Amos. Uh, For six weeks, we'll be in Amos, and Amos basically says, you people have all messed up, and you're the people of God. What's wrong with you? It's over. Uh, And so good. that was a great sales pitch for the next uh, series. Get ready. Right now, Habakkuk's screaming at God, and Amos is going to turn, and you know, we're in the crosshairs. So so it'll be, it'll be good uh, for us. One thing that Habakkuk does here then in that prophecy that I, that I really feel is helpful for us is that he gives us a very big cross of Jesus Christ. He's going to outline here, especially today, this idea that, that, that we left alone, we have Babylonian hearts, that we are just as bad as Babylon if we don't just think you're going to be punished, but what, why are you being punished we are the same as them, but we see that, that, that he declares something on the faithful. The righteous shall live by faith. We're going to see that there's something so huge and wonderful for those who believe. And what stands in the gap there is the cross of Jesus Christ. The f- more we explore our depravity, our sin, our, our, our wrong ways of being, uh, the more we see the glory of Jesus. Either one of those, we start to see that the cross of Christ is huge, and this is our Savior, and he is much bigger and much more extensive than we ever thought possible. So there is beauty here. I oftentimes call the minor prophets the, the, the dissonant gospel because it comes at us in, in a tone, in a key, in a way that we don't really 
think about or, or receive so rightly, and that's good for us. So today, I'm just going to give you a heads up. We have five woes, and that's it. And uh, so we are going to really paint a robust picture of where we've gone wrong, but have hope because there is a cross of Christ. Woe oracles are generally composed of two parts. One is a declaration of the wrong. And the other is a pronouncement of the judgment as a, result. So, uh, uh, as a result. So here's the two parts of the sermon today. So we're going to hear a list, the five points, of what has gone wrong. What is wrong about them and our Babylonian hearts. And then we're going to see how this judgment is doled out. So those are the two parts. The justice of God, the judgment of God. Here we go. The Lord's justice is imminent and inclusive. I think this is kind of the big response that we have fr uh, from, uh, from the Lord to Habakkuk. In chapter one, I'd encourage you, if you've not been here the last couple of weeks, read it. Uh, Habakkuk throws all of these questions out to God. Why aren't you doing anything? How long will this continue on? Why do you idly look at the wickedness happening in the world around us? How many of us ask this question ourselves? Answer me, answer me, answer me. I'm climbing up on my watch post. Here we go. I'm looking out. Tell me. And the Lord says, now's not the time. The righteous shall live by faith. And now he opens up and gives us the answer, and it is really intense. I am working beyond what you would even believe. And now the Lord's just justice is imminent and inclusive. It's imminent in that it is at hand. It is near. That's what imminent means. Uh, it is inclusive in that it is on all people. His justice is at hand, and it's for all people. It is imminent and inclusive. So let's go through these here. Um, verses 6 through 8. I believe we have several things up on the screen here. So uh, we're reading out of the ESV. I've got this. The CSB is a great different version that kind of gives us a, um, an easy reading of this. Um, Habakkuk 2, 6, and 7. Woe to him who amasses what is not his, uh, what is not his how much longer, and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise, and you will be spoil for them. When they do arise, you will be spoil for them. The Lord goes uh, into this idea of wealth. He's calling out this woe here, this first woe. Woe against false wealth. He says, woe to him who amasses what's not his own. Won't your creditors suddenly arise? Now, there's one part of me that wants to Dave Ramsey this, bring out some scissors and be like, all right, guys, creditors, let's cut up the cards. Um, but I'm not sure that's exactly what's here. Uh, well, I, I believe that it's, it's saying not who amasses, uh, amasses uh, wealth or rather amasses it um, from credit, but rather who amasses wealth wrongly. Woe against wealth wrongly acquired. Credit card is really powerful in going the wrong way. It's a tool that allows us a ridiculous amount of credit with no questions asked. I mean, at the beginning, but then once you're in, you're in. It calls us to question, how are we amassing our wealth? Not, not with what means, but when we go beyond, when we buy a house beyond our means, when we buy a car beyond our means, when we buy anything, especially with credit, like is that hot dog now even beyond your means, is you can just swipe all you want and not even care. He's calling us to question how we steward money, how we acquire wealth. 
my wife and I were just in Chicago this week, and we wanted to go to a, wanted to go to a show, and, uh, and uh, because I was terrible at planning ahead, the only seats that were left were bonkers. And I was tempted to just swipe the card and go there and hang out with all these people and their amazing Teslas and, uh, and, uh, and just fancy it up. Uh, woe to you who amasses wealth wrongly acquired. You're faking it. He says you just have fake wealth. And you go this way. We didn't go to it. We didn't go to the show. Uh, uh, we went to a movie, which in Chicago is about the same as, as Broadway. Good, good night. Um, the, uh, and so he says, you've, you've brought wealth that's wrongly acquired. It causes us, the Babylonians are acquiring wealth by taking over. I think the system of credit that we have right now in place allows us a very easy way to acquire wealth that's not our own. We can look crazy rich, even if we're not. And your creditors will arise. But he's not going to the immediate effect of being like, see, this is just going to play out. This isn't going to go well. He's speaking to the heart level here. And that's where I want to go, the heart level. We have Babylonian hearts. But wealth is not the end of our appetite. See, this, this trajectory, these five woes are going to build all the way to the point. So we start with wealth. That's really easy. We kind of run that off because I bet tons of us have credit cards right now and I just call that out. So it's kind of socially acceptable. But here we go is the slippery slope. Woe against false security, verse 9 and 11. We can read on the screen. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. Wow, that's a mouthful. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high. He's making the, we're amassing the wealth. Here's the snowball. And then we put our nest on high. And then we, which I would call suburbia maybe. Uh, and then we do that to why? What is the point? To escape the grasp of disaster. There's just a whole sociological thing that we don't have time for. The suburbia is really created out of the idea and the desire for safety. I think many of you, maybe even in your reasoning, I, I don't know, have said, I want to move to North Liberty because it seems a little bit safer. It seems a little bit nicer. It seems a little bit cleaner. It seems a little bit whatever it is. I mean, the fact that we have security fences in suburbia is a really good indicator that we like safety. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes on in this. And, and I know right now, I live in suburbia. I, I live like a mile down the road. Uh, from here, and, and it's hard for me to receive this, but we're called into question, of, are you really living here because you want safety? You want to go away from something else, to escape the grasp of disaster. As a suburbanite myself, safety is our prime motive of suburbia. We want serenity of the country. We want the activity of the city, but we all want it within the bounds of safety. And safety is something that needs to be tightly monitored. Here's an evidence. Do not pull out your phone and show me if this is you. Uh, But an example is, I bet that there are some of us in here who could actually right now on their phone, pull it out and show us who is at their front door by looking at their phone. Because when we have a desire for safety, we have to monitor it and we have to make ourselves with our tools as omnipresent as possible so we can keep watching our stuff. Now, maybe that's not the reason why we get those. But it's so weird that in suburbia, someone steals a package from Amazon and the whole structure of suburbia falls apart. We like safety. It's a big deal. Woe against false security. You use your wealth to create something of security and now you've got this home that is so secure, locked down, safe Then we group them all together into towns. Woe to you, verses 12 through 14. Woe to you against false justice. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Yikes. (laughs) Um, So what is he talking about? False wealth. 
then brings about our, our false security from disaster. And then, like cattle, we all kind of like group them in our cul-de-sacs and we, 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 we push out or we discern what, what is not safe and that's outside of the herd. And that's suburbia. We kind of group together and we decide who is in and who is out. And maybe we're not picking individually, but we create systems of means where they just, you can't get into certain neighborhoods here. The cost of our a real estate is such that certain people automatically kicked out. And I'm not speaking to social justice, that this has to be this whole different thing here. It's a call to our hearts. Why are we doing this? And I think that Habakkuk is giving us a diagnostic of Babylonian hearts that we have, maybe even unintentionally, won into here. I mean, look at this. It says, uh, verse 13, Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. I'm going to ask a question that I have just not wanted to ask, but I think needs to be asked. Who is actually building our town? Who is building North Liberty? I think if we go out and look around, here are two, two options. Go look at the workers who are moving the dirt, who are laving the pavement, who are erecting, who are erecting the walls, okay? Go look at these people. And now go look at their homes and go look at their lives. What do you see? And now we look at the other side of the people that are building it. Go look at the developers, the council members, the chamber of commerce, the engineers, the architects who planned the work for the workers. And now go look at their homes and their lives. Now, I totally acknowledge that, that, that there will be differences for a variety of reasons. Uh, whether that's education or just the type of work or, or, or discipline or some other thing that's in there. there. There are a lot of other variables there. But the big thing, I think, heart-wise, that's being called out is that there is a disparity. Now, I'm not speaking that it should be equal. I'm speaking that the giant disparity that you'll probably see in that comparison is what Habakkuk is referring to as injustice. And he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. He says, one day, this won't be the case. There will be shalom. There will be completeness. We will all come together. There will be no class. There will be no race. There will be no, no, uh, no hierarchy within the societal structure. Something will be different. The glory of God will be known, and it will be bigger and better than your glory that you are building in your suburban town. But injustice is not the end of our appetite. That is only the third of five woes. We've got to keep going. Woe against false power. So we have wealth and security and injustice, and now that moves us to power. Verse 15. Incredibly not PG. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. That is exactly what it means there. There's been, there's been research uh, that's, that, that's come out that, um, that proves that, um, or that, that, that defends that uh, sexual predators uh, oftentimes are not actually uh, motivated uh, first or most by just their uncontrollable sexual desire. I think sometimes we think that. But rather, sexual predators are motivated by their desire for power. It just happens that sexual misconduct or sexual assault is a really, really good way to, in a short moment, control somebody physically, and then you control them mentally and emotionally for a lifetime. It's power that's driving this. And that's why we bring about some of what's happening here. I'm not so sure they're saying, oh, I want to gaze at the nakedness. This is great. There's a power, a sense of power that's happening 
there. Now, I don't want to just brush this to the side. Uh, first, on that, because I, I brought about something really intense. Statistics show that, that, that someone who hears this sermon, whether it's in here or online or whatever, statistics show that someone hearing this right now struggles with this idea of sexual, uh, 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 sexual misconduct. And I just want to say, like, right now, like, it's not okay. I don't even care about, like, the icky side of it, that we all just think this is one of the worst sins ever. It's, it's equal, but it, don't let this take a hold of you. Like, this is, this is not good. This is not something you want to do. For your sake, this does not go well. This is not the source of power that you should have. There is something better for you there. If someone has ever had this on the flip side, if you have been a, a, a victim of this, this is not what needs to control you. There's a whole lot that goes into this. We have partnered as part of you with, with, with counselors. It, it, please come. I want, we want to talk. I am not I have not trained in counseling you, but I can connect you and pray for you to people who can do a very good job walking through this. This is a big deal. So I know I, I just brought it up. It's not the point of the text, but because I brought it up, I want to take a moment to say, whether you're on either side of it, either stop it or go find help. And we want to be that for you because this is the gospel being played out here. But why do they move to this sense of power? Why do we in our Babylonian hearts move to this sense of power? It's because you think that your power is your glory. I think that's where it's going here. You and I think that our power becomes our glory. All of this builds us up to this. Verse 16 then says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. Man, we're just ripping them off here. Um, Show your uncircumcision. In the poetry, it doesn't compare. It's not a one-to-one. And show your nakedness. It seems that's what would be appropriate. It says show your uncircumcision. Circumcision is the physical markings of the people of God. This is the Old Testament thing. And so when it says, and show yourselves, expose yourselves, what it's saying is that you are uncircumcised means that not only are you are wicked, but you are not my people. You are not mine. And so when you act this way, you are acting as though you are not mine. And you will drink of my cup of wrath, and you will expose that you are not mine. The cup in the Lord's right hand, that's the cup of wrath, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Yeah, the Lord is definitely answering Habakkuk here. Uh, The Lord says, you drink from my cup, for my wrath upholds my justice. Your false, self-created glory will be your shame. You will not... Uh, you will not only be exposed, but your uncircumcision will prove that you are not of my people. Utter shame upon you and your glory. But that's only four of five. Power is not the end of our appetite. You see what's happening here is that the Lord is going blow by blow, layer by layer, peeling this away with the superficial, socially accepted sins. I'm just using my credit. I'm just acquiring wealth somehow. And it's showing this trajectory of our hearts, the slippery slope that drives us down into deeper layers of offense. There is this idea of wealth that goes to safety, that goes to injustice, that goes to power, and now it's going to drive it home at our false gods. Verse 18 is kind of out of order within the poetry because it's prepping us for the final woe that we've just read at the beginning of the service. Verse 18 says, What what profit is an idol? when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts his own creation and when he makes, uh, when he makes speechless idols. 
And then we get into verses 19 and 20. Woe against false gods. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That says, what you're going to is, is a dead end. You're making something that's not real. Your house doesn't breathe. Your car, your job, your community, they, they, don't, they don't breathe in the sense that this living God does. So why? Why are we doing this? Why are we running after these things? And if, and if, and if and maybe another way to say it is it's not just the breath that's in it. Can this thing cease to ha- continue to have value and continue to have power if you neglect it? Your job won't if you neglect it. Your community won't if you walk away from it. It's the definition of community. Your money, your investments, your whatever, none of those things will actually happen. If anyone's had a loved one pass, their estate is liquidated. This stuff doesn't last if you're not there breathing meaning into it. So why are you breathing meaning into these things, O Babylonians? We have dug the trench of our wretchedness. But there's hope. There's this turn that happens. There's a Christian turn that happens. You see, just before the Lord pronounces these woes here in chapter 2, he says something to Habakkuk. You can get up the screen. Uh, I think we've got a, a slide here. Yes. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Literally what the Lord has just said before pronouncing these woes. The vision awaits its time. It will surely come. It will not delay. The author of Hebrews knows Christ, knows Habakkuk, and rewrites with a slight difference that is intended to teach us an interpretation of what is going on here. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. His justice is eminent. His justice is inclusive. But what? It's not the vision. It's the coming one. It's Jesus Christ. But also, Jesus' atoning work is accomplished and now available to all. Do you get that? The justice is there on all of us. However, Christ on the cross has died and provided forgiveness that is for all of us. Not unilaterally. He didn't die and then all were forgiven. He's died so that the righteous live by faith. By faith, now, you can be forgiven. So that was the bullet point. I could stop there, but I'm about to, this is my favorite two pages of the, of the outline here. We're going to preach Christ in this right now. The Lord's justice is imminent and inclusive. Jesus' atoning work is accomplished and now available to all. So if we see how Jesus actually satisfies the problems of our false safety, of our false wealth, of our false justice, or our injustice, of our false, uh, of our false gods, of our false, um, oh, goodness, uh, of, of all those things that we create that are false, we see that the true God, the true Lord, satisfies these things and invites us to be in something that is whole and is lasting. So, woe for has been laid out, and now what is the punishment? We see that time and time again, the punishment is doled out on Christ. I think there's another, there's another um, slide here. Isaiah 53, 5 
says it this way. It says that the woe was pronounced, yet the punishment was given to Christ. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Something happens with Christ. We understand Christ more fully and richly when we understand the trench that is our sin. So here we go. Woe for. What is the woe? Uh, You have have, uh, injustice. You have brought about power upon yourself. There you go. Uh, you've brought power upon yourself. He says, now the punishment, you drink my wrath. Jesus helps us with this. Who drinks the wrath? Do we? The faithful? John 18, 10 through 11. Uh, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. So Jesus said to Peter, your, uh, put your sword into its sheath. And then he says this, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink of the cup? The Lord says, you drink the cup. And Jesus says, no, I will drink that cup. But remember the fourth woe. It's not only will you, drink, you will drink of my wrath as your punishment, but you will also see your uncircumcision, that you are not of my people. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against our Babylonian hearts. Hmm, that's so good. That the death and resurrection of Christ brings us back into the family of God. It brings us back into the community because his blood provides forgiveness. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, then, we, then we read on. The, uh, this is, uh, this he set. So our debts, our wrongs, our sins, the things that have been convicted to us through these five woes, these things he set aside, nailing them to the cross. And then it's as though it says, and though the wicked one, Satan, ruled over you in your sin and your shame for his glory, now Jesus, verse 15, disarmed these rulers and authorities and put them to open shame instead by triumphing over them in him. So we put our faith in Christ and we find that the power is his. The power and the glory are his and shame is not even on us but is on the rulers and powers of evil. And because Jesus drinks the Father's cup of wrath and dies a shameful death which actually puts to shame the rulers and authorities and doing this, Jesus makes the spiritually uncircumcised of us legally his own. We are Christ's. And he can rightly take the cup after supper, and he says this, this cup is no longer the cup of wrath, but this cup is the new covenant of my blood. This cup is the legally binding covenant reminder that you are forgiven by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we'll get back here to these woes because Jesus unpacks all of these, but I want to take a moment here because we're, we're there. There's never really a, a natural time to teach this. I want to teach this now. Um, Jesus says this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Here at Parkview North, we take communion every single, every single week. We observe it. We, we, we take of the bread, of the cup. 
uh, there. Now, there's something that I usually say before, and you'll hear me say it again. Uh, it'll be a little awkward this time because I'm talking about it now and then, whatever. Um, I say, you can come up, if you, if you don't know Christ or whatever, you can come up and you can, you know, just, we ask that you refrain from taking the elements. And that's a nice way to say that. Um, but I'm not just saying that because it's kind of like a weird thing and just how do we get people through and clear the rows out. Uh, verses 27 and 28 in that same chapter, just a couple verses later, explain why we do that. And maybe it's an encouragement for unbelievers and believers alike. Uh, verses 27 and 28, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's really at the heart issue. Are we Babylonian in our hearts, doing whatever we want? And it's not just like, did you pray the sinner's prayer and now you can come take the elements? Like, are, are, are we rightly doing this? Do we, are we coming to him and saying, thank you for forgiving the sins in a way that doesn't just say, thank you, now I'm just gonna go be who I am and not turn from my sin. The, 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 the elements are, are, are to give us fuel for working out our sin. The blood, the bread and the, and the blood, they're there to, to, to motivate us, to, to spur on a hatred of our own sin so that in taking these, we are reminded again and again and again, oh, I did that and now the blood is shed for this and again, I did that and the blood is shed for this and how long will we do this cycle? It says, oh, Babylonian hearts, turn. And so that's one of the things that I feel is kind of rough to say right before we take the elements. But in a sermon, I can do that, so I'm doing that now. Be mindful of that. Maybe you've been taking the, the, the Lord's Supper here for, for weeks, and, and you, you aren't a Christian, or it's just socially awkward to refrain or whatever. Like, let's give each other grace in this. We want to do this rightly. It's for God's glory, whether we take it or we don't take it. There is a God. He is real, and it's not just a Christian thing to do. And so examine yourself before you take it today. I know it'll be a heavier Lord's Supper, but sometimes Habakkuk drives us to where we need to be reverent before the Lord. Let's continue on here because it's not simply about those things. The Lord drinks the cup of wrath, turning it into a cup of the new covenant, reminder of a blood. His justice is satisfied. Romans uh, in Christ Romans 5, 1 and 9, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justice is actually upheld. God is not idle. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's accomplished. The justice is satisfied on the cross. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. Man, these New Testament authors Knew their, knew their minor prophets. And having peace with God, as Romans says, by faith in Christ's blood, we are not in cul-de-sacs of safety, but rather we have peace and security as the household of God. This is where, uh, this is where our safety comes from. Ephesians 2, 13 14 and 19. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's amazing. The dividing wall. How often do we create those dividing walls in reality? Verse 19. So then you are, now, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God, and in that is your safety. Now, the first woe, it reminds us of our wealth, and he says that we receive within this household of God, we receive this abundant blessing. We gratefully receive in faith and thanksgiving all of the abundant promises of God, eternal life, but also the gifts of today. And well, five lands us in the point that we need to be at. It all depends upon a God who breathes. I mean, that's the entire thing that it's driving to. It all depends on a God who breathes. Often quoted, for good reasons, uh, uh, verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. I believe that, ver- that chapter, uh, what is it, chapter 1, verse 18? No, sorry, chapter 2, verse 18 of Habakkuk and 1 Corinthians 15, 14 are saying the same thing. If your God doesn't breathe, then it's not a God. If Jesus doesn't breathe and is dead, then he's not a God. He can't do what he says. But then we follow it up with verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This makes the whole thing true. All of the woes. You have false wealth. You have false safety. You work on injustice. You have false power. You have a false God. All of these are destroyed and then fulfilled wonderfully by Christ on the cross. So, we're going to drive to the application here. Uh, Just some questions here, because there's a lot that's going on here. We are Babylonian in our hearts, and we need to turn and be, and follow the way of Christ. We need to put uh, put our faith in Christ. The wicked will die from their own power, but the righteous will live by faith. We need to have faith in Christ. The Lord's justice is imminent and inclusive. Jesus' atoning work is accomplished and now available to all. His mercy is for those who believe that Christ satisfy, satisfies God's justice now. And there's something that happens for us now because we can say, oh, the coming one, he's not yet coming again. We're in this already, not yet. We know that Christ has died for our sins and so we can come to faith in that. But we also know that he has not yet to return. He says, if I go away, I'm coming again. And so he will come again to judge. So in this moment now, it's kind of training, training, uh, training day is, is, is boot camp, is, is whatever you want to call it. This is where we work out our faith in fear, and in trembling. So, some questions maybe that are helpful, that, that puts it you know, a bit on the ground that we can take with us uh, today. Whose wealth are you after? What stuff, what accolades, what degrees are you piling up? Whose wealth are you after? Whose safety are you after? As you invest your time, your attention, and resources into certain things, what is it that you're hoping to achieve? I think my wife and I ask this sometimes when we set out our calendar, because our calendar is usually the practical sign of what we value and where we've invested, and we ask, what are we doing? And sometimes we look back at the last quarter and we're deeply convicted that we invested into things that just built up us. What is the end of your investment? At what point will you notice the return and say, that's enough, I'm satisfied? I think if I can guess from what Habakkuk has already laid out, is he says the arrogant man is insatiable. There will never never be that day where you say this is enough. But it's a good question to ask nonetheless. When will you be satisfied? At what point is this done? 
Whose justice defines the rules? Is it you? Is it God? Is it Scripture? Habakkuk 1.7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. When will justice be upheld? Whose justice is it? Who's right? Maybe another question. Who needs to uphold the power? Man, this is a, this is a tough one for me. Uh, in an age of eroding authority due to the rise of anti-establishment, of self-actualized entitlement of the individual, the cross of Christ is still as scandalous as it was when it first appeared. It's not like we've gotten worse or better. Habakkuk shows, the New Testament shows, the cross is scandalous. It comes against our love of self. Who is your king? And maybe in this imagery, is your king the God-man Messiah who on the cross is atoning for your sins, or is your king the one who drives you and you'll do anything for the rulers and the powers that be who are actually in that same moment being driven to shame? That's a great diagnostic. Where are we going? Because on the cross, it seems that Jesus is dying and Satan is winning, but in all actuality, we're, we're finding out that Satan is being put to shame and the way of Jesus is very odd, but ultimately victorious. If we build on the sand of the times or the sand of ourself, it won't last. You must build on the rock. Your justice, your safety, your wealth must rest not on yourself, but on the rock, Christ. Okay, uh, second to last one. Who do you worship? Questions of wealth, safety, justice, and power are all subsidiaries of the question of worship. Who do we really worship? Not simply in what you sing or say, we're doing that right now and we can mean it or not, but uh, why? And this is the big question. Why? Do you do that? All of these questions. What, you, what wealth are you after? Uh, what safety? What justice? Who has the power? What do you worship? All of these questions, they all come down to this, this one question. Maybe ask more and more every day faithfully and, 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 and humbly. Why? Why am I doing this? Am I doing this for myself? Am I doing this for God? Is God going to be more glorified in this? Whether I spend this extra money I don't have. Whether I, whether, I, uh, whether I move to this place, and be cautious with those kind of questions, but whether I take this job, whether I have this conversation, whether I turn to my screen and neglect my neighbor, where and why am I doing these things? Because God isn't saying that he hates Babylonians and he wants to kill them. He's using them. He says he hates the wicked and the wicked are punished. And so we're invited to consider ourselves with Babylonian hearts because it puts us in a better place that our society is not teaching us. This is a very different trajectory. This is a very different story than we hear every day and you're going to hear for the rest of the day. You know, it, this is different and that's why it's odd. That's why it's dissonant because I have to preach something that just grates against everything that we know if we don't look into the, God, into the word of God. But the Lord speaks and so in preaching prophecy, I have to preach prophetically. This is what God says. I am very uncomfortable preaching it, but this is what we need to hear. The Lord's justice is imminent and inclusive. It's here and it's for all. 
However, Jesus' atoning work is accomplished and now available to all. All you have to do is acknowledge that your sin is real, it is your own, and say, Jesus, forgive me. You died, forgive me. That's it. If we don't do that, then we are not saved. Then we are not sa- We drink the wrath. If you're exhausted, there's a reason for it. If you're frustrated, there's a reason for it. We must turn to Christ, the rock. So let's turn to him now in prayer.